When was the last time you started a new job? Can you remember the actual experience of the first day? What you may have been a little nervous about? What about the few days leading up to it? Maybe you had a mix of emotions. Maybe some anticipation about an interesting new direction in your career. But maybe also some anxiety. Would the feel of the workplace be what you hoped it was? Like the atmosphere that it seemed to be when you were applying? Maybe you wondered how people actually acted in this place after the interviews were done and they're back to the daily reality. Can you remember your sense organs being on full alert about what's really going on here in terms of how people behave? Maybe you wondered, are they friendly? Are they sincere? Are they helpful? Maybe they're competitive. Are they trying to one-up each other? Can you take them at face value? Or are there a lot of subcurrents you don't really understand? Maybe you're looking for who's the person that people feel free to discount in some way, the guy at the low end of the totem pole in terms of status. And of course, you're hoping it's not you. And maybe at the other extreme, who's the guy you should be afraid of? Who's the 400-pound gorilla that the veterans know to watch out for. And what did you actually experience that first day? Now imagine coming to a new workplace where a few weeks pass and you notice that people are friendly and actually happy to help you. You don't meet any 400-pound gorilla. And at the other end, there's really nobody you find that everyone feels free to ignore or discount. Imagine people telling you directly if they disagree with you, but not in some angry way or some embarrassing way. They're just being candid but friendly. And why do we think about these things? Well, because this series of podcasts brings a deep focus on organizational culture. And the things we just went through tell you what an organization's culture is and why it's personal, why it inescapably and foundationally predicts the experience you're going to have about being at work. So what is a culture? It's just the total sum of how people in some group actually behave and how they think about those behaviors. Every group will have a culture. The question is, how healthy is that culture? How well does it support human success? In a workplace, how well does the culture support the triple win that makes a successful business. And remember, that means, is the customer winning by getting better value than it's paying for and better than your competitor can give? Are the shareholders winning because the returns are better than if they put their capital somewhere else? And are you winning because you're getting more of what you want from work, whether that's money, self-esteem, sense of community, chances to grow, than you could get somewhere else? And maybe it helps to paint all this in maximum contrast. Maybe an easy way to describe a healthy culture is if you first paint a picture of the opposite. Let's take an extreme example of an unproductive culture. Let's start with language. Language is one element of culture. And imagine a workplace where everyone actually spoke a different language, literally a different language, French, English, Chinese in the same office. That's unimaginable, right? I mean, you might have French and English and Chinese people in the same office, but they're going to be likely speaking the same language, whatever that language is. It's unimaginable to think of people being in an environment where they just can't communicate. In fact, it's so hard to imagine that you just never see that. 
But take some examples that are only a little less drastic than that, and you see behaviors that may unfortunately be pretty common. For example, imagine you need information from somebody and you later find out that he shaded that information for some reason of maybe politics or whatever. Imagine needing information and someone gives it to you, but they didn't really check it carefully, even though they should have known you were relying on it. Imagine you have some family emergency that requires you to ask someone to finish something for you. And when you come back, when everything was on the line, you find out he forgot or got distracted. Imagine some coworker telling you that he agrees with you, and you later find out that he says something very different to other people, including maybe your boss. And imagine having a boss who gets angry if you point out information that should change a strategy. So back to the triple win questions. Think about the situations we just talked about. Are those going to create a high-velocity workplace? And are they personally satisfying? What's your mindset going home every evening from a workplace like that? Now let's go back again. Let's flip and go back to a healthy culture, a culture where you can take at face value whatever people tell you, where people consistently keep their promises, and where the boss actually encourages useful disagreement. What's better about that workplace? Isn't it likely that this workplace is going to deliver better outcomes for customers and for shareholders? And what about for you? Isn't this a place where you'd rather be? Think about the efficiency gains from the things you don't have to check, the things you don't have to worry about or be distracted by. And think about the management gains from having a workplace where people don't really need a lot of managing because of the healthy behaviors that can be taken for granted. Luigi Barzini was an Italian journalist. He was arrested in 1940 for opposing fascism. And after the Second World War, he wrote some books about the efforts of the European countries to unify in what later became the European Union. And about Britain, he writes how it had fascinated him and others as young Italians, how an island nation with a population no bigger than Italy's or France's had for more than 100 years controlled so much of the world and people all over the continent wondered, this is Barzini's language, how had the British done it? How in the first place did a peripheral island rise from primitive squalor to world domination? And how did they, between the wars, still manage to keep their rickety empire together with so little visible effort? What was their secret? The search for it has vital contemporary relevance. The hope of isolating the formula to duplicate it and reach the same results obsessed foreign kings, emperors, dictators, presidents, and prime ministers for generations. What was the British secret? Were they supermen? And then finally, Barzini writes, after a lot of discussion and ruling out different theories, like was it the coldness of their climate, or was it that they were somehow more intelligent in discarding those theories, he and a friend concluded that the British, and here I'm quoting again, all had a few ideas firmly embedded in their heads, Whatever the number, the ideas were exactly identical and universal. That was why, in older days, in distant lands with no possibility of communicating with their superiors, subalterns in an isolated post facing a dangerous crisis had always known exactly what to do, with the certainty that the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary, the Cabinet, the Queen, the Archbishop of Canterbury, ale drinkers in any pub, the editor of the Times, would have approved heartily 
because they had the same ideas in their heads and would have behaved in the same way in the same circumstances. That's the end of the quote. Now, a lot of people don't think Britain controlling half the world through the 19th century was a good thing. So we're not suggesting you should go do that. Here at my company, we're not colonizing the world or building a naval empire. We're selling industrial solutions. But Bartzini's conclusion applies perfectly to business. If there is pervasive understanding and conviction about a few key ideas, an organization will have very high leverage. And you can measure the strength of a culture by the type of behaviors that can be taken for granted. What behaviors are they? How healthy are they? How pervasively are they actually followed? Understanding the answers to those questions give you a picture of an organization's health. The Latrum business philosophy, the business philosophy at my company, outlines the behaviors and mindsets that are key to personal success here. And these are taught to new employees in a day-long session, then reinforced in countless ways, annual updates to a theme of the year with training and implementation modules, content-specific refresher seminars, incorporation into job postings. They affect performance reviews, and they're critical to promotions. When an outsider first sees what we put on our walls, he might say, most companies have stuff like this, as if we don't mean it. And then other people exposed to the company over a long time and seeing how seriously we do take it may go to the other extreme and say, it's a kind of cult. Now, the difference from a cult is that typically a cult asks its followers to turn their minds off in favor of a charismatic leader. Whereas the Latrum business philosophy actually drives, even insists on, independent thought. The opening line of the document, the sort of equivalent to the we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. We don't say that. What we start with instead is in order to serve our individual interests, the shareholders and employees agree to combine our resources to make them more productive than they would be apart. Meaning, we stop combining our resources when it stops being a mutual win. So that's the foundational element. This is all based on shared mutuality of self-interest. The end in mind for all these behaviors is to continuously raise company productivity, which we define as increasing customer value or reducing costs. The three pillars of raising productivity are ideas, teamwork, and effort. Let's talk first about what we mean by ideas. And it may be easiest to define this one again by comparing it to its opposite. Imagine a workplace where the leader has made it clear that no one else's opinion matters. And first, before we talk about anything else, let's remind ourselves that's the surest way to chase away talent. High performers want to be in a place where they feel that they're impacting results and are being heard. So if nothing else is true, you can be sure of chasing away talented people if you lead that way. And while that's true, that wasn't really the reason that this point got into the Latrum business philosophy. Instead, it's a recognition that no single brain, no matter how brilliant, can respond to the demands of our competitive world. We're most successful when every brain is engaged. So the guy who sees a problem or an opportunity and ignores it is limiting our success. That's what we mean in the philosophy about the importance of ideas. And by teamwork, we mean, at a base level, can you see yourself as part of a team and how your success depends on other people succeeding in their roles? 
because we're trying to keep raising value and rewards in a group setting rather than competing with each other for our share of some static pie. So we ask people to be friendly and helpful. We ask people to think about the global optima instead of their local optima. I'm not coming to work worried about my department, but how my department influences the success of the entire company. And by effort, we mean none of this works without seriousness and execution. So we ask people to bring commitment, even enthusiasm, and to keep their promises. These are the basics. There are probably unlimited nuances and advanced applications and good case studies. If you're interested, keep tuning in.